Coming up on Tech Nation, we hear from Jimmy Sony about who started PayPal and how they've gone on to start and or fund much of Silicon Valley's significant companies today. This includes Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, among others. His book is The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Then with the rising call to move away from testing drugs on animals, not to mention testing on humans, we hear from one promising alternative. Dr. Eric Burl from Genoskin joins us. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Remember SARS, the immediate precursor to COVID-19? How exactly did it start? In 2012, I interviewed David Quammen, the author of Spillover, Animal Infections, and the Next Human Pandemic. SARS did not start with humans. SARS emerged from an animal somewhere in southern China. It was a mystery for a while which animal it emerged from. And it got into people by way of restaurants, probably, that were serving wild animals in what they call the wild flavor vogue in southern China. And then it got into a man, a doctor, who decided to visit his nephew, go to his wedding in Hong Kong. So he went to Hong Kong and checked into a hotel. And from that hotel in Hong Kong, SARS spread to the world. Wow. How long did that take? Hours. Hours. Maybe a couple of days. The man, this doctor, checked into room 911 on the ninth floor of the Metropole Hotel, and he may have sneezed, he may have coughed in the elevator, and people up and down the ninth floor then left that hotel the following day, got on planes for Toronto, Singapore, Beijing, and Hanoi, and carried the SARS virus with them. 78-year-old grandmother flew back to Toronto. She was getting sick on the way. She eventually landed in Toronto. She died. By the time she died, her son was infected. He went into the hospital. He died. People in the hospital got sick. Some of them died. And that went on in these several cities. It all came from a virus, and that virus came from a wild animal. In retrospect, we know that the animal was a bat. And sometimes they pass from non-human animals into humans, and they don't cause disease. They become innocent passengers, new viruses that we're carrying around without any effect. There's one called simian foamy virus that falls into that category. Passes from monkeys in Southeast Asia into the humans who sometimes feed monkeys in sacred monkeys at monkey temples. And this virus jumps across. Simian foamy virus. One of the scientists I followed, Lisa Jones Engel, studies that. But simian foamy doesn't cause disease. Yet it's sort of an indicator of opportunities for other viruses to pass, and that's why she studies it, because one of those other viruses could be the next SARS. Now, we recently had on Bill Wasick and Monica Murphy with, with Rabbit, and of mm-hmm. course, Monica is a, a veterinarian. She explained how bats can very you know, quickly and simply, you just think they fluttered by you, but in fact, they've, they've broken the skin. I They're, just had lunch with Bill. That's a very interesting book. There you go. Rabbit, yeah. Very interesting book. And uh, we can understand about the monkeys. This doesn't explain how a gorilla could give you a disease, though. No. Because I would run. 
<laughs> from a gorilla? Yes. Well, that's, that's rational, whether the gorilla has a disease or not. But gorillas are involved in Ebola. Actually, what started me on this whole book project was I was at a campfire in a forest in Central Africa uh, in the midst of a sort of a cross-Congo walk, something I was covering for National Geographic. And at this campfire, I was talking with these two local guys, two Bantu guys who were working on this trek, and they started telling me about the time Ebola virus struck their village. One of them lost six family members. He had a niece who died in his arms. He was covered with her blood, but he didn't get sick. And then the other fellow told me, you know, there was a peculiar thing, too, when Ebola struck our village. Nearby in the forest, he and I saw a pile of 13 dead gorillas, a pile of 13 dead gorillas in the forest. And I knew from my reading of the literature, that Ebola kills gorillas and chimpanzees as well as humans. That was the moment. That was 12 years ago. But I never got that image, that phrase out of my mind. 13 dead gorillas near the Ebola-struck village. It represented the connectedness of us and other species by way of the diseases that we share. David Quammen's 2012 book, Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic, has received new interest of late small wonder. David Quammen is a three-time recipient of the National Magazine Award and a contributing writer for National Geographic. He recommends a different way of shaking hands with your friends. Use your feet. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Jimmy Sony about his book, The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Then an advance and alternatives to doing research on animals, which may not just be a substitute. It looks to be even better. We'll hear from Dr. Eric Merle from Genoskin. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Jimmy Sony. Well, Jimmy, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we've always had great waves, great tsunamis of innovation in Silicon Valley, starting with the transistor and semiconductors and then the Intels and the Apples and the dot-com boom. They all had one thing in common. They were driven by groups of interconnected people who are on each other's boards, invested in each other's companies. You know, uh, they all had this. Now, the president of Intel, for instance, could be on Google's board. And if you didn't look, you didn't know. Silicon Valley was this web of entrepreneurs. Today is no different. PayPal, Facebook, Tesla, Airbnb, SpaceX, a host of other companies. Jimmy, who are these people? Who does the average person know and who don't they know? Yeah, no, I appreciate that's basically the, you, you described one of the theses of the book, certainly a through line in the book. You know, to take a step back, it's funny that you mentioned the transistor. This project, in some ways, traces its history back to where the transistor was found, which were created, which was Bell Laboratories. 
So in the 20th century, you know, if you were thinking of like the, the Olympic dream team of innovation in American tech, it's at Bell Laboratories, largely in New Jersey. You know, they invent the transistor. They invent cellular networks, satellite communications, touchstone dialing. I read that they had a, done even an improvement on the bazooka as a part of a project for the DOD. They also win multiple Nobel Prizes. You know, they, they play host to people like Claude Shannon, who was the subject of my last biography. When I was thinking about Bell Labs and just learning more about it, I visited the campus. I started to just think about these clusters, the networks that you described. And, you know, like as one does, I went down Wikipedia rabbit holes. And one of the rabbit holes I went down was, was PayPal. There's a group that's come to be known as the PayPal Mafia. You know, that it's a complicated name, but let's just call it what other people call it. They're known as that. The alumni from PayPal who are at the company principally between 1998 and 2003 today constitute like, you know, they, they, they are the Olympic dream team today of tech. Uh, they are the creators of YouTube. They're the founders of LinkedIn. They created Tesla and SpaceX, Affirm, Palantir. And that's just what they created. They've also invested in everything else. And you can sort of trace a line, like if you've used the internet between, let's say, 2003 Maybe, maybe later, maybe 2010 and 2022, you are connected in some way to the people who created PayPal. And I had the question, you know, I think probably the most interesting stuff in these people's lives is going on right now, right? But I was this goofy fellow who said, wait, 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 wait. Let's go behind the music. Let's like figure out what were you doing before when you were in college? Why did you join this company, PayPal? Who are you before you you know, achieve what you've achieved. I wanted to know what those years of 1998 to 2002 were like. Also, you know, it's just, as you know, all too well, like it's one of the most generative periods in American technological history. And it's characterized by this incredible boom and then like a, you know, a soul crushing bust. And I wanted to know what that, those highs and lows were like, right? I mean, they were faintly Dickensian in some way, right? So I felt like, okay, I've got this, dramatic cast of characters. I've got a, a scene or a stage on which they're all, you know, living out their earliest years. Uh, let's go see if I can get them to talk to me. Who were the people who started it? Who were the core people and how did it start? Yeah, it's a group where, you know, there are household names in the mix. So, you know, Elon is obviously a household name today. Um, you've got Peter Thiel, you have Reid Hoffman, who, you know, is the founder of LinkedIn, a huge advocate on any number of issues, a kind of, you know, one of the major domos in, in Silicon Valley. You have Max Levchin, who's the creator of a firm, David Sachs, you know, and then you have people on down the line, like the alumni from this, the founders of Yelp, uh, Russ Simmons and Jeremy Stoppelman come out of this particular group. Um, back, let's, let's, let's sort of go in the time machine. Back in 1998, they are not who they are now. They are far from household names. And what they are is sort of two groups. One is a company called X.com that is founded by Elon Musk. He is fresh off the wake of his first startup success, a startup that was called Zip2. And for a variety of reasons, he wanted to uh, work and create something else on the internet. He had real passion for wanting to modernize, improve, and revolutionize finance. And he thought that one website, one company should do everything in finance. He didn't understand why you'd have to like go to four places to manage your money. He thought there could be one place that did it all. Um, and he thought that he could build it. Um, I mean, it was, a, it was a project of enormous ambition, vast scope. So that's one sort of camp. He starts X.com 
uh, you know, he really incorporates and starts to hire in early 1999 um, with that vision. There was another company. It's called Confinity. Uh, it was called Fieldlink when Max Lebchin and Peter Thiel first meet, and Peter gives Max $100,000 to create this thing. It's called Fieldlink. And Fieldlink's goal is to create mobile encryption libraries, so to improve security on these amazing mobile devices called Palm Pilots, um, among other devices. But the Palm Pilot's the most prominent. That evolves to a product that is known as PayPal. And what PayPal is, is I'm going to be able to do this amazing thing that if, Moira, if you and I are at lunch together and uh, you you get the bill, I if I'm going to reimburse you, I could do it through the infrared port on my Palm Pilot, which is a relatively new addition to the Palm Pilot suite of products. And we could whip out our Palm Pilots and I can essentially send you like a $10 IOU through the infrared port. <laughs> it was a miracle. It was a miracle 20 years ago. Who would ever have thought of such a thing? And so the idea was like, look, we can divide lunch tabs. I think more broadly, what they were thinking is this was a, a innovative use case for an innovative piece of technology that up to that point didn't really have like a clear use case. It was sort of like a, a, a feature without a, a, a purpose, right? They also thought this is going to be exciting enough for this tech crowd that really like loves like their early adopters. They embrace this. And I would say more seriously, you know, Max and Elon both at the time said, look, eventually mobile devices are going to be everything, right? We're all going to have supercomputers in our pockets. We've got to get ready for this. I'll tell you one story. One reason for the, the name X.com that Elon had explained at the time to the people who worked at the company is he said, look, if I have a mobile device in my pocket and I want to access my full financial life, it's easiest just to type in X period COM, five buttons, instead of some crazy like bankofamerica.com, right? And so his view was, look, these, these devices are coming faster than we think. Max, for his part, had specialized and studied mobile cryptography and mobile encryption because he felt the same way. He said, this is the future. We're going to, you know, this is where it's all headed. Now we live in their future, which is called our present, right? Which we do all walk around with supercomputers. But at the time, you know, they're 20 years ahead of, of some of the, some of the technology. Um, both companies have an offshoot product at x.com emailing money. I mean, that's just a natural part of what you do if you're a financial services superstore and at PayPal, Emailing money is the backup to if you and I both don't have Palm Pilots uh, at the lunch table. So they were already in it. We got three guys. We got Elon, already a serial entrepreneur. We got Peter Thiel, who was giving some money here to uh, Max Levchin. And he was there working out all his stuff. When does it become PayPal? So it's a, it's a you know it's the beating heart of the the story and it's a a story that took a long time to get right because there were so few people in the room in some ways. I'll, I'll answer it in two ways. I'll tell I'll talk about the specific PayPal product. So in the spring and summer of 1999, Max Levchin and Peter Thiel have a problem, which is no one's no one's especially excited about mobile encryption libraries. They change the product and they create the infrared money beaming. But it turns out like money beaming isn't taking off. Like they're getting good press, but there aren't, you know, the phones aren't ringing off the hook with people looking to beam money over the airwaves, right? And everybody at lunch has to have a Palm Pilot. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And it has to be, and it has to be of a certain model. So it has the infrared in it and you got to get close enough. And exactly. And not get ketchup on it. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. <laughs> well, 
No, it's crazy, crazy. And I would say I actually went back and I read Palm Pilot for Dummies just to, just to like familiarize myself with this technology. And there's this really great paragraph that I have in the book from Palm Pilot for Dummies. And it basically says, if you're too, if the Palm Pilot infrared beams are too close, it won't work. If they're too far, it won't work. So you have this sort of like Goldilocks problem with infrared beaming where you've got to get it just right three inches or else something will get screwed up, right? So they're discovering rapidly that there's no appetite for this. At the time, the company was called Confinity, which was a mix of, uh, it was sort of infinite confidence was what Max wanted to convey, but you don't start a financial services company with con at the beginning. <laughs> they outsourced the naming to a, a woman named Esby Master, who her particular uh, focus in her business is naming things. So she is, uh, when she was working at an earlier firm, she helped devise the names Touchstone Pictures, Weston Hotels. And she works with them through a very rigorous process to develop a series of names one of the names that her team comes up with is PayPal. And she, when they present the names, is sure that this is the name. Now, the team doesn't love it. They warm to it later. But that's where the name PayPal is born. And it's, it's essentially in um, June and July of 1999 is where the name comes from. The product evolution happens that fall. As they're discovering that like the prospects for Palm Pilot money beaming are pretty limited, their email money companion product starts to take root and then take off. They goose it in various ways we can talk about, but principally that's where the PayPal product comes to life. It's important to say X.com has the same success with its email money product, but that product is not called PayPal until the two companies merge. And how did PayPal become big P-A-Y, big P-A-L? Uh, <laughs> that's a very, you picked up on that. I, I'm, I'm glad you did. That was my little, uh, my little naming Easter egg is somebody who spends his life playing with words. I, I wanted to get the words right for sure. Um, so Esby Master, who is just, uh, she was one of the best people I interviewed in this whole thing because her entire life has been devoted to deciding what things should call themselves, right? So she named a bunch of Apple products. You know, she named, she, naming is her thing. It is the great love of her life. And she was a, was this curious mix of, you know, somebody who had a humanities education as well as an MBA from Harvard. And so she mixes like business and poetry in a way that I found very appealing. Uh, and I'm sure is part of the reason for her success. Originally, her conception of the PayPal name was at the middle P, the, it would be a lowercase P. And the reason is because if you have a capital P at the beginning and an lowercase l at the end, you have a symmetry in the way the name looks if the two letters in the middle, the P, uh, the Y and the P both descend. So they're descenders, right? So you'd have ascenders on the side and descenders in the middle. So it gives it this like nice visual symmetry, right? And she presents this on the PowerPoint slide, like explaining how that's actually one of the virtues of a lowercase p. At some point, lost to the sands of time, someone makes an edit and they capitalized the P in the middle. And I asked her, she went back into her files for me and was so gracious. And she has a note and it just says, chose PayPal with the capital P. But she herself said, you know, I don't remember when we made that change. Um, <laughs> but it's a very interesting little footnote. And it's, it's again, it's lost to the sands of time. She, she couldn't verify what, when the change happened. But that's the reason that the P in PayPal is capitalized. What I think that story reveals is not the edit but actually the level of depth and granularity that she brought to the naming process. Because even the idea of the visual symmetry of the letters is part of her criteria for selling the name originally. She has other criteria, but she thought about it at that level of detail. And I'll tell you, like, 
the team itself, like, you know, confidence in infinity became confinity and that wasn't going to work too many syllables. They loved, like they, they liked cachet, but <laughs> yeah. cachet could be misspelled, mispronounced. Esby has a very, she, she has a very precise, like an, a background in etymology and in linguistics that shapes how she thinks about this. And what she told me is she said, naming a business is as crucial a business decision as any other, which is why you can't treat it as a purely creative process. Um, I found tracing the name to be, as I, you can probably tell, one of my favorite parts of the whole book process. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is Jimmy Sony. You may know him from his first book, A Mind at Play. He's here today with the founders, the story of PayPal, and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Well, here we have Elon Musk over here, and you spoke with Elon Musk at enormous length, uh, which was amazing. How did Elon Musk get together with Peter and Max? So it's, it's um, you know, it's one of the great uh, collisions, one might say, of, of talent in Silicon Valley history. You have this company that has this product, PayPal, which is Peter and Max and a group of people they've recruited. You have this other company in X.com, and they're both succeeding. The email money products are taking off. But with success came competition. So they're both fighting for market share on the auction website eBay, which at that point I think was five or six years old. It was a public company, but it hadn't figured out payments. And so people glom on to Confinity's products and X.com's products to email money to like reconcile auction sales, right? So I buy a Beanie Baby from you. I email you $10. Everyone's happy. They're fighting for market share. So they're giving out bonuses. They're trying to do little tricks to like get, you know, get, get share market share on eBay. Though Elon lovingly referred to it as the widget wars. He said, you know, they'd put up a widget. I'd wake up. I'd see their widget. I was like, Oh my God, their widget's so great. I got to build my own widget. And he said, this process went on for a while and we're burning up money all the while. Um, Elon reaches out to Peter. It's, it's a series of outreaches, but the, he, he notices his name. He gives him a call. They start to have discussions and conversations. These two companies are locked, by the way, in fierce competition. And we're talking about people who are not, you know, slouches amid competition. What both sides notice is, I think, for each side, a, a peculiar thing. Um, for Elon, it is he's, he rarely meets competitors who are as skilled or as competitive as he is. In Max and Peter, he sees that. So he sort of he gives me this line when we're speaking. He says, whoa, respect. Like, wow. You know, when, when Max meets Elon, he says, this is obviously somebody who's just really, really, really smart. And I really like smart people. And so there's this respect now, but there's also this tension of what's going to happen. The two companies start to discuss a merger. It is not an easy discussion process. There's some false starts. There's some contention. But eventually, the two sides reach an agreement where they are going to join forces. One of the principal reasons they join forces is they're both trying to raise more money and this is the sort of tail end of the dot-com boom. And so you're, they're getting market signals like things aren't going to go well for the next little while. Like some of these high-flying dot-coms that were built atop napkins, you know, business plans written on napkins, they're not going to last very long. We've got to raise money. The two companies uh, find a way to, to, to reach terms for a merger and they close a $100 million round. And about a week after they close that round, the market starts its decline, which you know, goes on through the year 2000. Uh, that was a big decline, also known as the dot-com bust. There you go. <laughs> that was a, those were tough times, especially for people who really weren't in the dot-com. They were building real businesses. It hurt, yep. it hurt everybody coming out of yep. there. One thing that always happens with these 
these webs of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley also is there are fallings out. Who fell out with who, when, and why? Yeah, it's, um, you know, as somebody who is an outsider to tech, I, I don't think I realized just how Shakespearean the drama could be, <laughs> you know? Um, and in this story, there are a couple of points where, you know, essentially the, th- the employees get to band together to oust uh, one CEO, then get together to oust a second CEO, all in the space of, you know, six, seven months. And so there's this, uh, the first palace coup happens and it's, uh, it's, it's for a CEO they felt hadn't sort of grown up with the company and he's deposed. And then Elon becomes CEO. And, you know, Elon is half the company. I mean, he's recruited key people in big roles, people who were with the company for a long time. Very, very, uh, you know, a, a, an amazing cast of characters. And I will say one of his great superpowers that's under-discussed is his ability to lure talent. I mean, he's he's exceptional at it. Like, it, it's actually... The stories are legendary. Frankly, some of the stories I left out are the most, some of the most interesting. He will make offers on the spot. He'll fight for people if he feels like they're going to be strong additions to the team. So he's got a lot of these people in his company. But there's a disagreement around a few few things, um, principally around technological architecture. He wants the company to be built atop a Microsoft-based platform. And Max Levchin and the engineers that he hired have built PayPal.com on Linux. Elon has a variety of reasons for wanting to switch from Linux over to Microsoft. And that precipitates essentially a, a kind of a, a coup while Elon is on his his honeymoon where they, they gather. <laughs> Good time. They gather, Good time. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even people who are part of it said it was it was a little it was cruel. Um, he is he is ousted from the company that, you know, where he have built half of it. And it's a very tense moment. I would offer a couple of observations. The first is this, and I think this is really important. This wasn't this wasn't personal. For Peter and Max and their cohort, they felt the company was going in the wrong direction, that it was not going to be able to achieve the big, big vision that he had for it, that they needed to narrowly focus on the payments product. For Elon, as he put it to me, he said, look, I had already had one startup that I had done. It had been acquired for $300 million. I made some money. So uh, an exit of that scale or an achievement of that scale, that's not what I was after with this. What I wanted was a company that was going to demonstrate the power of the internet, the full power of the internet to change finance forever. It was a clash of founder visions. It's been characterized later as, as you know, ego, and maybe there's a little bit of that. But to be honest, it's a difference in founder visions and a difference in approach to how the company should operate. Part of how you know that it's not quite as personal as it's been made out to be in the past is that Elon remains a board member. And more than that, like sends out a very gracious note about Peter taking over as CEO, maintains good relationships with everyone in this story, right? And they, they're they co-investors with him later in the things that he does, right? And so I think this has been to some degree, like people wanted there to be more personal drama than I think actually exists in this story. I will I will say that the, the other part that you can only write 20 years later, <laughs> and you can only write it in 2022, is, you know, in some ways, thank goodness that it happened. Because what it did is it freed Elon to pursue SpaceX and Tesla in the ways that he did. And I had an and that's not my observation. I can look at it, but I didn't I don't know. This was the observation of people who looked up to him and who worked with him at x.com who said, you know, that this essentially like freed him to pursue those passions and almost 8 years exactly to the day that he was deposed as CEO of x.com, he is looking, you know, into the sky, uh, you know, near the in the Kwajalein Atoll 
watching the first successful deployment of the Falcon 1. I'm speaking with Jimmy Sony, the author of The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Dr. Eric Merle from Genoskin talks about how their non-animal drug testing methodology may actually improve the drug development process. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Jimmy Sony, the author of The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Well, in terms of Silicon Valley, sometimes we call it Palace Coup. Sometimes we call it inmates running the asylum. There's a number of metaphors. It all depends on what your position is at the time and how much money you have in it. But uh, what other ways are these founders different and what other ways are they alike? You know, it's one of the things that was most interesting. Again, coming in as an outsider, I was able to, I think, identify some things that seem very natural to the people who live this story, but are not qualities that maybe the rest of us share. I'll, I'll offer one, uh, one example. This was a culture and a group of people that loved puzzles, math problems, and logic problems to a degree that I don't think the, the rest of us appreciate or or even really could could get behind enthusiastically unless you know we are the rare kid who loves math homework um, so I would have discussions with I had a discussion with Roloff Botha today Roloff is the head of Sequoia Capital at the time he was a fresh out of Stanford MBA a fresh out of Stanford MBA uh, joined the company uh, became CFO at a very young age. And when I started my discussion with Roloff, the thing he remembered was the puzzle that Peter asked him during his interview process, um, the exact puzzle about these two ropes and you burn one end. You've got two ropes that will each burn for an hour. And how do you figure out 30 minutes from the, you know, that sort of thing. 
I discovered four years of the company newsletter, and for a period of about two, two and a half years, the company included a puzzle every week in its weekly newsletter. And the only prize was like, you know, it was a, it was a shout out if you got you it right. It. You yeah, want it. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> that was big. Um, <laughs> and I would find again and again that puzzles, chess playing, game playing, logic, this was all part of the culture. And it wasn't forced. It wasn't ham-fisted. It wasn't someone saying, we should really get good at puzzle. It was just like a natural part of what they did. When Peter and Max meet, one of the first things they do with each other is go out to coffee and throw math problems back and forth at one another, right? And I don't know about you, but my, my friends and I don't do that. And so I found this to be very... <laughs> well, I'm afraid I'm one of those engineers. I got to tell you, you know, people say, I run, I jog, and I get endorphins. We do math right. and we get endorphins. Right. So welcome to Silicon Valley. Well, and look, my, <laughs> no. my, my dad is a biochemical engineer. He grew up playing bridge. I think I probably understand him a little bit better now as a result of having done this. <laughs> yeah. but, but what is interesting about it, so it, I, I think of it as actually, go, it goes a level deeper than just they like puzzles. There's two things about it. The first is, they're competitive about puzzles, right? So there is this streak of like, I don't just want to do it. I want to find a more elegant solution than the other person. And then the, the second part of it is like, I want to be faster than you, right? So when they would praise engineers in the team, like I would regularly have people say, oh yeah, yeah. There was this one time he solved the math problem and he just did it so fast. And we were like, ah, oh. and I, I, I just thought to myself, like, you know, this is so disconnected from your day-to-day -day work, but I love that you love it. I mean, that's great. Um, the second part of it that's important is PayPal is a series of very complicated puzzles to solve over this four-year period that I'm writing about. They have the puzzle of how do you get users? They have the puzzle of how do you make emailing money work? There's the puzzle of, oh my God, we made emailing money work and we're giving out money faster than we're taking it in. How do we make the business work? There's the challenge of once you create an email money payment mechanism, people are going to use it for fraud. How do you solve fraud? It's a series of puzzles and problems that require this kind of instinct to solve. And it's not something where you can do a Google search and look up the answer. That's one of the key things about this story that I found so interesting. And someone, an engineer named Eric Klein explained it to me. He said, you know, we had to invent, not research and apply. Um, and so he's like, so even today, he's like, my mind is primed for like, how do I invent my way out of this? He, and, and, you know, they were free, they freely admitted that it wasn't always the most efficient process, but the, this generation or this group of people come of age in a place where like the answer is how do you fix it? How do you invent? How do you solve? Um, I, I, uh, I would be hard pressed, I think, to find other working environments that are quite like this. I do feel like it's a part of Silicon Valley, but even within Silicon Valley, this particular group of puzzle solvers and game players struck me as, uh, let's say, just say outside the curve a bit. Well, Jimmy, you know, there are frequently not a lot of women in these stories. Um, and you talk about some of them and you talk about, and you have some on the cover of your book. Um, I'd like to talk about one, Amy Rowe Clement, the vice president of product for PayPal. What did she do? What was significant there? You know, I interviewed over 200 people and more than anyone else in the story, her colleagues would point to her as the person who, in the midst of all of this chaos and all of this convulsion, actually made the company work. <laughs> and, and by that, I mean, kept the company's product operation moving forward and tied together all of the different components that actually make like a, a company like PayPal, a digital company, able to release digital products, which is to say... How does QA tie in with design, tie in with engineering, tie in with some of the business operations folks? 
And and you have this person who like in into that role steps Amy Rowe Clement, who joins X.com somewhat on a lark. She is mid-application to graduate school. She has done a stint at a bank, and an old banking contact reaches out to her. His name is John Story. And he says, I just took a role with X.com. You have to meet this guy, Elon. She comes down. She interviews. And Elon at the time is selling the big financial superstore vision and selling it very, very well. And she, she, the way she described it to me, she said, you know, I left and I thought, why is banking so expensive? Why are there so many fees? That seems crazy. So instead of going to graduate school, she joins X.com. When she joins, her, her nominal job is business development, which doesn't, you know, she doesn't really have a portfolio per se. What she discovers is that it takes a strategic insight, but really sort of organizational discipline to take code and technology that's being built and translated for users and translated for external parties. And the way she described it to me is she said, you know, it's it's sort of one part therapist, one part historian. Um, you have to know what's been built so that you can explain like what needs, where, where things have gone, especially to people who are new in the organization. And then she said, and a part of it is just like actually making sure that, you know, that, that a change in one area of the company doesn't completely rile someone else in another area, part of the uh, another part of the company. She is one of the longest serving employees in this company. She is there when it IPOs. She becomes one of the youngest executives at, at eBay when eBay acquires PayPal. And I would say that the thing that she that the, the the role that she plays is indispensable, but it's often what I would say is like it's overlooked. By people, meaning you know, an internal combustion engine needs oil; otherwise, the whole thing locks up, right? And you you actually need somebody who is the person that can choose the path, see what the path is, and then get people there without you know big combustible like crazy fights. Like she is the person who does all of that, and in some ways, like you know, people had talked about David Sachs and the, and the product vision, and there was that for sure, but. There was a level of discipline and operation that she and her her counterpart, who is the head of UX and design, Sky Lee, brought to this uh, to this project. I had the good fortune of interviewing Sky and Amy together, which was great um, because it was really it was really engaging to me to see what their colleagues had said to me, which is these two, basically these two made the place work. <laughs> like like yeah. you have all you have this like crazy set of personalities, a lot of you know, but then you have Sky like. And Amy actually making the place function and operate and release products. I think the other part of it is that for for Amy's role wasn't one of these that was like very well defined until she defined it for herself. And after that, it becomes this kind of thing where like the, the product group doesn't really run without her. The other piece that the other insight I took from her, which is in the book, is she described having a product organization and hiring high EQ people to continue to push the product forward, those product leaders end up playing key roles in product at many different companies, um, some of the biggest you know, household names, Silicon Valley companies. And this was their training ground. Uh, and, and Amy was seen as sort of the, 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 the person who really drove a lot of this strategy forward. Um, Again, more than one of her colleagues kind of remarked and said she was the I had one person say she was the person who taught me what it meant to be an operator. Like she was the person who like this is what it means to operate within a company and to do so professionally, but to do so with real rigor. And let's appreciate the fact that many of the people she's trying to provide the oil for are engineers. They're not just people. Right. <laughs> They're engineers. Right. A much tougher, tougher group. 
at the end, entrepreneurs might have gone to a particular school or be, happened to be have chosen a particular timely field. But my experience is that they must have a huge will to succeed. Who is Chris Wilson and Stephen Edwards? Ah, so this is the the end of the book, and it's my one of my favorite stories to write. It was the most personally meaningful to write and the most surprising. People think of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, and they have a certain image in their minds. And I had that image in my mind before I dove into this story. I also had the kinds of people I thought would be inspired by, you know, the the Amy's and the Elons and the Maxes of the world. And I found out that there were two prisoners in the Patuxent Institution in Jessup, Maryland, who had taken the image that Fortune magazine had created of the PayPal mafia, which is this sort of mafioso get up thing, like a little photo. It wasn't, I mean, I the, the photo wasn't representative. It was a handful of people. The company was several hundred people, but it became an iconic image. They had gotten a copy of that in this maximum security prison facility and read the article clipped out the cover and had it up on their prison wall. Both gentlemen, Stephen and Chris, had been incarcerated for murder. They were young. This was at a time when the crack epidemic is tearing through Baltimore and Washington, where they both grew up. And I, at first, was like, no way. <laughs> like, you could put up a photo of Michael Jordan or, you know, whoever. There's no planet in which you actually, maybe you put up the image, but come on, let's like, and they pushed back and said, no, you know, we didn't just put up the image. We taught a class inside the prison and the class was called what you can learn from the PayPal mafia. And the reason was this, they had access to business publications. So they would clip and save every article about Reed Hoffman or Elon or any of these people. They has turned it into a packet. And the reason they taught this is there were sort of three reasons, two or three reasons. The first is they said, look, Business is one of, and entrepreneurship is one of the only places in American life where what you've done in the past does not affect what you can do in the future. So it doesn't matter if you have a prison record, if you can build something meaningful that's a product or service people want to buy. That was really important for Stephen and for Chris because they were going to get out. And the way Stephen puts it, he said, when you get out of prison, there's no real reentry. He said, maybe you work at McDonald's or we give you a handout, but you're not going to be expected to live you know, the way everyone else lives. And he said, in entrepreneurship, that ceiling doesn't exist. You can create something and if it's valuable, people will give you value for it. Um, that's one reason. The second reason is many of the people who are in this story are immigrants who come from nothing. And when Chris and Stephen are in prison, they have nothing. And this, it was important for them to see that you could go from you know, arriving at the University of Pennsylvania with not much money, moving out to Silicon Valley, and becoming somebody who creates SpaceX and Tesla, to see that you could be a Jewish refugee, Max Levchin, and move to Silicon Valley and create PayPal, then create Slide, then create a firm. For them, this was a model of how you go one plausible path that was more plausible than you know, uh, becoming a, an, a successful musician or a successful athlete, a more plausible path to go from nothing to something. The final reason that it was particularly inspiring to Stephen is Stephen actually was, a, he was his own, in his own way, a software entrepreneur within the prison. So he learned to write code in prison, built programs on the prison computers, became a kind of like unpaid systems administrator, uh, filed, he has a patent to this today. They're both, both Chris and Stephen are out of prison. But for him, the journey from software to success in life became more clear as they learned about the people who created PayPal. I thought that Chris and Steven's story stood way, uh, it was a very different place to see this and I wanted to document it. 
Well, Jimmy, this has been really enjoyable. I hope you come back, see us again. I would like to. Thank you very much for having me. My guest today is Jimmy Stoney. His book is The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. While calls for the reduction and elimination of drug testing on animals have increased in recent years, the solution may well revolutionize the entire drug discovery and development process. Dr. Eric Merle is the Chief Business Innovation Officer at Genoskin. Eric, welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Maura. Uh, you know, we've grown so used to, first you test your drug in animals, and, and, uh, and, and we pick animals that are close to humans, wherever the drug is going to be used or needed, such as human insulin is very close to pig insulin. But um, it never occurred to me that we could be working on a drug for humans and we couldn't find an animal to test it in. Yeah, there there are plenty of diseases uh, in which an animal model just can't uh, be found. Whether the disease is rare or common, actually being able to reproduce a disease in an animal takes a lot of work. Um, That's how our company was started when we realized actually our founder and CEO, Pascal Descargues, When he was in San Diego uh, doing a postdoc, he uh, found that a skin disease that was uh, dramatic on uh, human babies uh, was unable to be reproduced in animal models. There were no animal models that could reproduce that disease, and yet he he was trying to find a solution to that disease. So he looked at the problem a different way. Is there a way to not just reproduce something, but can you leverage what already exists? Can you take something that might not be as needed or no longer needed and use it to generate data on it? And he realized that there was plenty of human skin that was just thrown away post-surgeries. And uh, that's how he started the company. He went to a, a local hospital and uh, got the authorizations to be able to use that tissue and uh, afterwards was able to maintain that tissue alive, maintain its properties, and study the disease in that tissue. How long can you keep such tissue alive? So depending on the technologies, and technologies can always improve, um, we today have uh, the ability to maintain it uh, viable, functional, for 10 days. So you get in there, you get the skin, and you start working on it with your drug. Uh, What are the advantages of working with skin? Well, the advantages of working with skin is, one, it's available. It's something that is commonly available, albeit it needs a lot of uh, ethical review board authorizations. Uh, You can't just work on human tissues just like that, you have to get the the approval of the patient. You have to get the approval of the ethic review boards. And um, then key to, to using that tissue is maintaining its properties. And that was really the, 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 the key driver to the technologies that we've developed. Uh, 
So maintaining the immunocompetency of the tissue, the ability to find the immune cells within the tissue, to understand how there is the crosstalk, the function, um, the uh, understanding the molecular signature of the tissue, uh, so that when you introduce a drug, um, depending on the the route of administration, whether you're going to do it topically, such as a cream, or you're going to inject it, or you're going to uh, provide it to the tissue uh, as if it were an injection in a human being, um, you can look at what happens in the tissue. And because you have such a large amount of that functional organ, you can compare different conditions, something that you can't do in a clinical trial. I keep thinking about how in clinical trials you give one person or a set of people one dose and then another set of people another dose and another set of people still another dose. And you say, well, what dose should we have looking at all these different people? Can you give multiple doses to the same skin? You can, because actually it is separated in small units. We make small units that are about an inch in size, and uh, that will allow you to look at these different conditions. In, in a typical surgery, we can do roughly 50 of those for one individual. So you can think of looking at multiple conditions and doing replicates so that from a scientific perspective, you're also uh, very sound. And um, then look at how those minute sometime changes can have very large changes on the body. You know, we have another aspect that we see in clinical trials is that we want to look at different ages. We want to look at different ethnicities and sometimes even different medical conditions. Are those able to be distinguished here as well? Yes. In the majority of cases, yes. The, the diversity um, and the heterogeneity of the population that is going to be the patient population that we find uh, among our, our, our uh, neighbors and, uh, and, and family members, uh, they all have different age groups, are all different ethnic uh, backgrounds. You have uh, uh, males, females, and, and, and so all that has to be represented when you do a clinical trial. And the FDA just recently actually stated that uh, when uh, one particular drug was uh, brought to their attention and was tested on only one particular group, they requested that it be tested on something more representative of the overall population. Luckily, those surgeries are so common that they replicate the human diversity. So we can have men, women, we can have different age groups, we can have different backgrounds. And uh, so that, that is a great uh, opportunity to, to have this type of diversity uh, in, in a clinical trial. So much of what you're saying to me sounds not only like research, it sounds like an ongoing, ever-expanding research base. Um, how do you work with drug companies? You just mentioned it. We are a research partner. So we come in to answer questions. We work with various pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, academia, uh, to answer pointed questions. What will happen? What's inside that black box? 
Because often in a clinical trial, you'll see the end result. You may not see all the different steps, all of the different pathways. And understanding that, understanding the biomarkers of what will be the effect of a particular drug in a full human being is key to accelerating uh, the speed at which we can develop drugs. So even if you have a good matching animal, you really want to see what it's going to do in humans before you get to live human testing. Even the best research animal is just an animal. Just before the COVID pandemic hit, the Environmental Protection Agency of the U.S., that's the EPA, declared that starting in 2035, there would be no more testing in mammals for the research it funded, the uh, the EPA funded, and they awarded millions of dollars to, to search out alternatives. The Veterans Administration, the Veterans Affairs, declared no more testing in dogs and cats after 2025. Even the Department of Agriculture, they've already banned research using cats. I mean, the trend is clear. The goal is for animal testing to be retired. It seems to me that GenoSkin is, fits right in with those trends. Absolutely. It's a, uh, a desire of the greater public. It's a request of the regulatory bodies. And uh, it is a need of the pharma and biotech industry uh, to do better, uh, to uh, have better solutions. The attrition rate, the failure rate between data that you can generate in animals and what then happens when you bring it to human is over 90%. So we can improve that. And by obtaining or having the ability to obtain human data before you do any testing in human, not only makes it less risky, but it will improve uh, the number of drugs that will be developed. It will improve our understanding of those pathways, our understanding of how we can solve uh, a little baby's uncurable disease. Now, many people don't realize it, but it's on average 12 to 15 years from the lab bench to an approved product. As you say, 90%, it's like one out of nine succeeds somewhere in there, one out of 10. Um, what in that process can accelerate and what do we have to live with? What, how could it be shrunk, if you will? versus, well, some of this just takes time. It takes time. Recruiting patients, even in a clinical trial, takes an enormous amount of time. Uh, reproducing that diversity, finding patients that are of different age groups, finding patients that are of different, different ethnic backgrounds, that takes time. The sheer uh, ability to find patients that are willing to test a drug that's unknown that takes a lot of time. And the the preclinical aspect that's currently being done essentially on animals and also on cell cultures um, that may be human cell cultures, but they are cell cultures, so they don't reproduce the 3D environment, which is our organ. There's not the metabolism uh, that you have in a normal human organ. Um, so that period of time that's in the preclinical stage that usually takes on average today in, in drug development about five to seven years that can be shortened um, because the data that we can obtain can be human data already 
So you can really compress that five to seven years. And you were mentioning nine drugs. Well, can we think that maybe it won't be one out of nine? Maybe it'll be three out of nine? I would uh, maybe be shocking and say, why can't it be nine out of nine? Why can't we be certain that a drug will work in a human and that the question isn't whether it works or not, but how well does it work? And then our efforts are on developing the better drugs. Well, I have to say, Eric, going back to the idea that you are research partners with these drug companies, it's almost like every relationship and within that relationship, every project you have pushes that frontier forward. It does. It's exciting every day. So uh, we have projects with partners that are uh, short projects, take a couple months. We have projects that are now year-long projects where we are part of the drug development. The industry is changing, and uh, we are very fortunate to be part of it. Well, I've been waiting to the end to finally ask you this question. Where do you get the skin? There are plenty of surgical procedures uh, today that skin is, uh, can be sourced from. And uh, there are a lot of patients that undergo surgeries, such as tummy tucks, that want to get rid of that skin. And when you tell them that they have the ability to participate in research as an alternative to animal testing, but also an alternative to some human testing, a way of accelerating drug development, most people will say, you know what, instead of throwing it away, please use it. That's amazing. I do want a tummy tuck, and I can actually do good at the same time. You can. You can. Eric, this was just terrific. I hope you come back and see us again. It will be a pleasure. Thank you very much, Maura. Dr. Eric Merle is the Chief Business Innovation Officer at Genoskin. More information is available on the web at genoskin.com. That's Genoskin, G-E-N-O, skin, genoskin.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.